Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. something different for the podcast this week. We thought, why not do a retrospective on what is one of the biggest years in gaming history, 10 years ago. Well, that's it, because I'm not sure if you know this, but 2013 was 10 years ago. And every time (laughs) I think about that, it makes me feel ill. This year, Scott, I don't know why. Maybe it's because, as we're going to get into... 2013 was quite a significant year for me personally, Mm. and also for my interest in games, Mm. and there was so many highs and lows in the gaming world, and in my personal life in this year, uh, that I'm I'm thinking about it a lot. I'm I'm, I'm going over stuff that happened. I'm going over the games that I played, and I'm just finding it endlessly fascinating, because this was kind of like a flashpoint for me personally. Mm -hmm. I think 2013 was the year when I realized I want to talk about games for the rest of my life. It's not just a kid thing. Uh It's not just something I did. It wasn't just a hobby. It was up there with film and books and music for Mm. me in terms of analyzing it as an art form and getting into the nitty gritty and watching a lot of um, video essays at the time really helped unlock a part of gaming that I just didn't know existed because while I talked about games with my friends, it Mm. was like, it was very shallow. It was just like, oh, you played Skyrim. Yes, have you seen this like cool thing that happens? Yes, I didn't think about them on deeper terms of why were these mechanics good? Mm -hmm. Why was this setting so appealing? And then 2013, with all of its highs and lows in the industry, all of the games that came out, made me think about games in a different way. So Mm -hmm. before we get into 2013 itself, I wanted to ask you what your (laughs) kind of flashpoint was. Like, when did you realize gaming was this art form and that you wanted to make your career out of it. Well, so, uh, first of all, I should have opened the podcast by saying this is the What Culture Gaming podcast. I'm is it? Taylor, that's Josh Brown. Hello. Hello. Um, we thought as well, just as a general wider point, that we'd start making this middle What Culture Gaming podcast slot a bit more of a wider conversation piece. Maybe it opens the avenues to have more retrospectives and things that are a bit more timeless, allowing the likes of the wind-up that me and you do on a Monday or the Untitled Banner podcast that me and Jules do on a Friday to be their own things, even yeah. more than they are. And so, why not dive into something like uh, describing 2013. Um, in that regard, 2013 itself was the, I was still in university then, I was doing my master's. Um, I did my master's on uh, video games are art because that was the conversation of the time. The 2013 was when Gone Home came out mm-hmm. um, and Brothers, I wrote on a couple of other ones as well, but Gone Home was the big one. Yeah. No one could decide if Gone Home was a video game or not. And that was the whole thing. And it was, are video games art? Are they not? They got inducted into the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art. There was the whole thing with Roger Ebert saying they weren't art. There was the whole debate over um, whether a video game could have authorship because um, it was it was stupid from the off. Um, you talk about things that made you want to say stuff. That was definitely <laughs> one of them. Um, because Ebert's whole thing was like, well, the player um, authors the experience because they are the ones moving around the world. Therefore, it's not authored by creators. And immediately it's like, but they're playing in a specific space. Yeah. They can't make Nathan Drake take off if they want to. <laughs> they have to play within the confines. It's obviously authored. Uh, Robert and so um, Richard Robert Ebert. Uh, well, you've absolutely blown my Mr. mind e- now. What the hell's his name? Roger. <laughs> you, I, I, I Roger. Love, I love the 
guy. And he started throwing around that the name guy. Richard Ebert. Richard Ebert. And um, we should say that we're recording this very late on a whatever day it is. Because Thursday, we've been recording it Thursday, all day long. Because again, in the UK, um, it's a long bank holiday weekend. So we have to try and do as much stuff as possible to schedule as much stuff as possible. And you know what? Go on. It's a long bank holiday this weekend That's as well. That's what I mean. There's another one coming up. Two in a row. Love it's it. ridiculous. Also hate it. Yeah. And so, but yeah, that whole thing at the time, um, I was incensed by that. But in terms of a wider sense, in terms of like, oh, you know, you, you know that you want to talk about it. You know that you want to, that you live by the medium. I, that was always there for me. It was always, I think about this so, this is such a wider philosophical way of thinking about life. But I do think that they gave me the respite and the purpose that I didn't get from school or like the social circles at the time. Like, yeah. I think I've mentioned on a podcast somewhere that I was like bullied relentlessly for years when I was a kid. So I think, without realizing it, I got so lost in video games and the agency that they provided and the power and the escapism that they give you because I didn't have that when I was at school. Mm. And it's not that I didn't have friends or didn't have a, a loving family or anything, but I think, thinking back, that's exactly why I fell in love with the medium so much yeah. because they let you inhabit these spaces, um, et cetera. So in terms of, like, you know, you flash forward to 2013 and the massive turning point that the industry took in, in amongst all that stuff of, like, the wider recognition, um, and that was, like, the biggest turning point since the 90s when they stopped being classified as toys. And I like, I, but having lived through all those things, it was like, like it was like everyone was catching up because yeah. it was like, oh yeah, okay, they might be, oh, okay, they are, and people like me going, yes, they always were, and um, we've been crying in Final Fantasy VII, we've been loving Metal Gear Solid, we've been, you know, acknowledging all of these things that line up with film, and you guys are finally just going like, oh, these little grubby kids in the corner, maybe they do have a point. And so like, <laughs> it was just that thing. I was always like, I always loved this medium. I always loved what it provided. And I always loved like being able to talk about it. And I always had friends to talk about with it, with games too, by yeah. sense, but you know what I mean? Um, so I always kind of had that. But I, uh, yeah, I think in terms of being tied to them, I've always had that internally. I yeah. think I had like a narrower view of the world because when I was mm. younger, you know, say in my, in, my, in my teens, I always just assumed you can be into one thing. I always right. thought I was, the, I was the film guy, right? I, I loved movies, lived, mm. lived, breathed them, read about them, knew endless amounts of trivia, helped me get this job, funnily enough. <laughs> but I hadn't considered that I could be a film guy and a games guy. I remember realizing you can listen to Megadeth and Metallica. Yeah, and yeah. then just being like, oh, this just enjoy all the good things, to be honest. Exactly. Yeah. Why am I picking? Why am I like... <laughs> putting myself in this lane when I love this other thing mm -hmm. and it has the same depth and complexity uh, and desire for me to pick it apart. So this 2013 was the was the year when I realized, oh, my identity isn't just built around one thing that I like. <laughs> no one cares about that. You know, do things for the, for the love of it, do things for the thrill of it, do mm -hmm. things because you enjoy it. And I realized then that I have this... Uh, burning desire that yes. annoys you every single day of your life. It makes my life. To love video games and I the think I was going to also say that 2013 was the year that I started War Culture. It was October 2013. Of course. So um, that whole year and the year previous, like I said, I was doing my master's, you know, coming out of having been at university for like three years or whatever um, at that point. And so I was trying to write online. I was a music guy back then. Not that I ever gave up on gaming whatsoever. It was always there. But I was trying to um, be a music journalist. I was literally interviewing bands. I was trying to write up reviews. I was doing articles for websites and everything. Trying to get that off the ground, and it wasn't until I shifted onto gaming, which was always there, yeah. um, that everything started working, and all of a sudden, they would take more articles. There were less people trying to be games writers back in 2013 in the online space, or whatever you want to say. Um, and then What Culture was you know, listed as a place that would do that as well, and I just sort of like pivoted across and started doing What Culture stuff. Um, my early stuff is a mix of music and gaming. Mm. And then um, the gaming stuff just just flew so much more. Um, and it was just, there was just so much to talk about. And there's yeah. so much to fight for. Or like, And like I said, especially in that time, it was 
the you know, conversations on ludonarrative dissonance, which had happened back when GTA 4 came out. Yep. But things that came back around in terms of, well, ludonarrative dissonance, oh my God, the 30 second version, the idea of playing a game in a way that breaks the way that it's written. So like um, Nico Bellic in GTA 4 is always the classic example because he's complaining that he has to be drawn back into a life of crime. But in between missions, you could just take a rocket launcher to a grandma's face. Yes. And then go to the next cutscene, and he would immediately be like, I don't want any more violence than is necessary. That was a whole conversation in itself as well. So for me, that whole spark that was at the beginning of the 2010s was just so easy to get stuck into and be like, no, this needs to be said. You guys are missing out on this, yep. et cetera. Well, that was it, man. Like 2013 was the first year that I took notice of the industry. Mm. I always was on the hype cycles. I always tuned in for E3 and the like. Same. But I never kind of got into the nitty gritty of, you know, developers over-promising, ver- uh, you know, um, right. vertical slices or all of the stuff that we talk about today. But because 2013 had so many high profile disasters and stories as well as it had great games you know i'm looking at aliens colonial marines which came out that year i was going to open on that and i thought that might break you so i want to remind you that straight away that is part of my origin story because that was the (laughs) most my most anticipated game of all time so to watch that burn was Mm -hmm. crazy you know all the discussions around the last of us bioshock infinite the the backlash to dmc devil may cry all that stuff was novel to me i hadn't seen that kind of peek behind the curtain as it were in terms of the industry ever before just because I hadn't looked for it and then like I said all of these video essays kind of a pivot to YouTube Mm. got me more aware of that stuff but before we continue I just want to kind of contextualize (laughs) 2013 for people who may not remember please do may not have been around for 2013 or involved in gaming for 2013 because Mm -hmm. this was the year where the new console generation was about to begin. The PS4 and the Xbox One was about to drop. Mm -hmm. And at the time, everyone was kind of saying, consoles are dead. These things are not going to sell. Mobile (laughs) is the future. Obviously, that was proven wrong. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of the end of an era for me, 2013, because you have a bunch of high-profile disasters. Like I said, you also have um, Dead Space 3 coming out in this year. Mm. You have the rise of Outlast, which dropped this year. So you've kind of got... Arkham Origins as well. Arkham Origins. You've got like the end of certain narratives in the gaming space. You know, mm. big publishers saying, horror doesn't sell. Everything needs to act, be action-focused. That was more or less proven dead here. You've got <laughs> mobiles of the future, consoles, nobody wants them, proven wrong. Mm-hmm. And you have huge successes like GTA 5. I just think in that term, it kind of feels like we've been living in the shadow of 2013 for the past 10 years in a way that I never felt previously. It did feel like an end of an era and the beginning of a new one, and that's not just because new consoles came out, but it Mm. felt like all the narratives around the trends and the design ethoses and the franchises of the time Mm -hmm. were kind of pivoting or changing i always thought that like we had this conversation years ago on the podcast about like what what are the, what was the last when was the last time we had a new genre when was the last time that we had a new gameplay mechanic and obviously there's been battle royale you know there's been fall guys like well, there's been various things that played a bit differently over in an overarching sense not just oh you have access to a certain specific mechanic um but when you go back to that's why i was kind of romanticize and then kind of catch myself doing it the 2000s and the early 2010s in terms of like the amount of games that were coming out but to be honest like when you go back and look at 2013 like it was wall-to-wall insane quality and this isn't even everything but just to run stuff down we can revisit them if you've got them written down as well um but this is just off the top of my head and then i went back and just looked at like a wider list um but yeah gta 5 the last of us bioshock infinite assassin's creed black flag stanley parable the tomb raider reboot brothers a tale of two sons gone home XCOM enemy within splinter cell blacklist batman arkham origins Gears Judgment, Saints 4, and DMC Devil May Cry. And also, like I said, the explosion of indie games. Papers, Please, Hotline Miami came to Mac. That was when I finally played Hotline Miami. Yeah, I didn't have it on did. PC. Gone Home, um, I mentioned Stanley Parable, um, Rogue Legacy, and then Flower came to PlayStation 4. 
Um, ridiculous. I think it's fascinating just how many of those games are not only talked about today, mm. but still sell well today. Mm -hmm. This year alone, we've seen, obviously, The Last of Us TV show. Mm -hmm. That, as a franchise, was established 10 years ago. It's bigger than ever. It just got a remake last year. The Last of Us is eternal. I just <laughs> saw this week that GTA V was back in the top 10 sales oh my for the UK. It's been 10 years since GTA V. The shadow of that thing is, is not even a shadow. Enough. It's still present. It's still there. It's still selling and it's 10 years old. There must be enough, well, that's the thing. On a 10-year gap, enough people have aged to become 18 to buy it legally or have aged to the point where they, GTA is on their radar and a whole new generation of people buy it again. We've rarely ever had that in gaming. Like, mm -hmm. that's a weird thing. I know it's not specific to this year, but the idea of multi-decade-long franchises that from third parties, um, the likes of GTA, the likes of Call of Duty. It used to nearly always only be the Nintendos that stuck around, Sega with Sonic or something. But like the idea of being able to, it's not the rock star of like watered those plants in a while. Yeah. But you know, um, uh, Call of Duty is still very much going strong and that's been carried over for like two decades. Um, but yeah, that whole thing of like 2013 being the time when everything was like flying, all systems go kind of thing. Um, that is interesting that that was the last time we had such a variety of stuff. Yeah. And everything that I just reeled off there, um, I don't think any of them came in hot. Like, I remember Arkham Origins being a little bit buggy, but for the vast majority of the games that I mentioned there, they all came in very playable, immediate. The idea that a game couldn't work on launch day was not a thing. Like, yeah. you bought it, you played it, the patches were kilobytes big. That was it. That very much kind of came into its own with the arrival of the PS4 and the Xbox One, wasn't it? Like, one of the first games, one of the, uh, one of the launch games, actually, for at least the PlayStation 4 was uh, Battlefield 4. Yep. And because that famously was, you know, released on every single console imaginable <laughs> and DICE was really struggling to get all of those versions working, mm -hmm. it, the servers were botched at launch. It took them ages to fix it. But before then, like you said, you know, you got GTA 5, which, yes, the online component was a little bit busted, but yeah, the main yeah. single-player game worked. The Last of Us, obviously, was a pristine experience, and all of those indie games you mentioned that's, were really fascinating as well. You know, you mentioned, like, living in the shadow of something. Like, that's... we Gaming has never shaken that thing from 20... That feeling from 2014. I remember those conversations around Assassin's Creed Unity, Battlefield, like you said, just that whole thing of, like, oh, is this what games are now? Because the projects are bigger, the money is bigger. We've never got away from that. The only yeah. thing that's changed, quote-unquote, is more money invested and bigger disasters, like Redfall or whatever it is. Um, yeah, twenty. 2013 might be the last year that gaming was safe. Interesting. In terms of like the assumption that you're just going to buy something and play it. Yeah. As opposed to like now it's always like, okay, but what state's it in? Let me let me watch a digital foundry video and make sure it's actually <laughs> going to run well because yeah, it's ridiculous. Well, that's why we, we keep saying things are in the shadow of like mm. these things. But I, I, I view 2013 as the industry planting seeds for the next 10 years, like those franchises and those games that mm. still dominate today. The pivot to indies that you mentioned, you know, people wondering whether Gone Home was even a video game at all, which seems like crazy <laughs> in hindsight considering how diversified the indie space is. Stuff like Papers, Please, which yep. was taking a more political, overtly political stance, you know, and eventually leading to maybe something like Disco Elysium being able mm -hmm. to be so popular and not have the argument of, is this really a video game surrounding it? I just wonder whether we will ever live through, and we almost certainly will, another period where we see these seeds getting planted mm. again because everything 
since then, again, in my opinion, has been a has been a spring off from that. You might look at live services and Destiny, which obviously came a few years after. Mm-hmm. But even the kind of the start of that was in GTA Online. The idea that yeah. this was going to be like a live service thing that was supported for a long time. Players were going to be playing in the same space, either PvP or PvE. Things the were first going to season was Rockstar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly that. We got like Dead Space Three introducing microtransactions, mm. which obviously led to an absolute disaster a few years later. Mm-hmm. But you've got all of these things that have kind of brand off now, and I wonder whether we'll ever get to the point where it seems like it did in 2013 that the industry was almost heading for disaster. It was mm. going to radically change. People didn't really know how it was going to change. A lot of people were betting on mobile, like I said, but they were planting the seeds for what was to come. I just mm. don't ever see us getting to that point again. The industry kind of seems too big and trends almost too set in stone to to kind of endure through that revolution. We did a, a video the other day. Uh, positing the question of has this generation been a disaster we Mm. got some lovely responses from people on twitter and i think we kind of talked about in there that every generation since 2013 and the introduction of the ps4 has Mm. felt more iterative than it has uh what was the opposite of iterative (laughs) like like a a big revolution a big overhaul if, if that makes sense well, that's kind of the thing with um, trying to like you know nail down what were the biggest changes in gaming and going back to 2013 and the influx of indie storytelling as much as like production budgets changed. I remember everybody getting sick of pixel platformers. I remember that being the thing that you could just write off a whole game if it, if it was pixelated at all. Whereas like now that's just settled into it's an art style. You know, games yeah. can release with beautiful pixel art and not necessarily be a platformer or not necessarily be you know whatever it is. Um, I feel like my, like 2013 for me and like I said, I did my whole dissertation thing on it at the time. It's something that I was so invested. One of the first things I ever wrote for What Culture was 10 Reasons Video Games Are Art. Right. Like, I'm just going to stay to this yeah. for the, whoever's reading this because um, I need to get this out. But the maturation of the medium can be, you know, there was such a point there where previously you had things like um, Bioshock, like the whole... Um, the whole way that that game sort of plays with agency, all the would you kindly stuff and whatever. Then you had GTA 4 and the Lunar Narrative Dissonance stuff. You had these little um, attempts at maturing what the medium could be. But then in 2013, when you had that conversation around authorship and or authorship um, and whether they belong in the Museum of Modern Art and all that kind of stuff, uh, because we won, quote unquote, and because everyone accepted that obviously these are well written or these are well framed stories, narratives, immersive experiences, it led to God of War 2018 or Uncharted yeah. 4 or whatever you want to say about the more mature stuff that Sony puts out now. Um, and those experiences, like those games, I, I don't believe you would have them if um, if all the if Ken if the Ken Levines of the world or whoever hadn't made those leaps in the first place. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we talk about this game to death, but there is a reason for it. You look at something like The Last of Us. Obviously, spec ops the line. Well, uh, we do talk about that game to death as well. But no, The Last of Us. Everyone knows how that game influenced games and culture. You know what it introduced that kind of style of storytelling, that new approach to implementing a companion character that, yes, was in Bioshock Infinite, but was done, in my opinion, way better Mm. in uh, The Last of Us. But I think there are other reasons that game pushed the medium forward uh, that I don't get enough credit. You know, we've talked about it when we were talking about The Last of Us show, Mm. uh, but, like, even the ability to put Ellie on the cover of the game, which got pushed back at the time. Like, you can't put, like, a teenage girl on the game. No one 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 buys video games for that. You cut forward 10 years, and the part one remake Mm. has Ellie front front and center. You know, she's bigger than Joel. Those little battles for representation, or, like I said, different 
approaches to stories? Can we tell human stories about human people and look at characters and protagonists that, you know, don't often get the spotlight? I think that, the, the, the like I said, the, the, the seeds of that were kind of here. It's still not perfect today, of course, mm. but definitely stuff like The Last of Us has obvious implications on the industry going forward, but it also has those kind of subtle ones that mm-hmm. you kind of like don't even know about unless you've read a bunch of interviews and realized that that was an issue to begin with because you just <laughs> kind of take it for granted, I suppose, and don't even think about it. There's a, there's a weird knock-on effect. So you were saying about like, you know, will we live through another planting of the seeds, a similar seed, something that would expand what gaming is yet again. I think it's an interesting talking point where, because I love every single game I've just reeled off. I love 2013 overall as a gaming year, and I love what gaming means overall and the amount of different things. Like for me, I think I, I must have said this on a podcast or a recording, but I do think gaming or video games are, is like the ultimate medium. Yeah. Like if you're into architecture, you can apply that to level design. If you're into script writing, you can do that. You can film cutscenes cinematographically or whatever. Like for me, it's it's the everything. You know, you, why not? You can achieve whatever you want in uh, in that space. However, I think it's an interesting talking point. I don't necessarily side with this, that the more we moved into thematic territory and storytelling territory, the more you get away from video games. You know, you get away from what the medium is. And it's like, if, if you had a movie that released with an interactive component where you had to play along to get the story to finish. Black Mirror Bandersnatch. Right, yeah. Like, that's like a weird, like, trying to walk the line. But I mean, like, a proper cinematic experience yeah. where they ask you to take part. Um, would people like that or not? Is that blurring the lines too much? Um, and that whole thing of, you know gameplay being minimized in favor of weighty thematics or whatever it is, like memorable storytelling. Like obviously those stories are memorable. I love God of War 2018, um, but something like God of War Ragnarok was a little bit too iterative on the gameplay mm-hmm. side and its biggest strides were made through storytelling. Yeah. And I think that's interesting in terms of where we are because I don't know what you do to, I don't necessarily think you need to invert that, but I did play through, I think I said this when we did this the other month, play through the Atari 50 collection. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of games from the 70s that still play phenomenally well, are super addictive, are super fun, and are fundamentally video games. Yeah. And I think that's interesting as a talking point on like, can you have both? Or the industry for so long, for so long, was obsessed with chasing Hollywood because yeah. of Metal Gear Solid. And um, once Kojima openly said he wanted to be a film director and then just made a game that was shot like a film, we sh- we chased that so much. Yes. Um, and we've proven we can do it now. And now Hollywood is adapting all of these games um, that are more cinematically focused. And I'm just curious, like, can we just make games again? It's funny that because 2013 was the year that Beyond Two Souls released. You know, <laughs> David Cage really striving for that cinematic approach oh to God, validate yeah. the medium. But I completely agree with what you said there. I love cinematic games. I love Naughty Dog games. I love God of War Ragnarok. Mm. But I think those games work best. And I think those developers actually know that those games work best when you are playing to the strengths of it being a video game. You know, mm-hmm. briefly going back to the, to the Last of Us, that game's story works so well in the end, as we always talk about, because, you know, right at the end, after kind of choosing what Joel does and how you take people out, you don't get the choice through gameplay yes, yeah. to kill that uh, doctor right at the very end. And that kind of you know, makes you realize that the character that you've been controlling that you might have projected yourself onto is a person that has his own agency mm-hmm. kind of away from you and it wrangles with the controls in that way. I think The Last of Us Part Two works primarily as a video game, and I think it's video game-ness in terms of its structure and swapping between characters and getting you familiar with characters through gameplay and through, you know, ambient dialogue and stuff is going to struggle to be adapted to a TV show yeah. because that format and that structure 
just wouldn't work as well if you're not controlling the characters. And, you know, you go back to 2013, you have stuff like uh, the Stanley Parable, which obviously draws narrative out of this kind of meta framing of it knows what you're going to do and it has this open conversation with the player. I think yeah. 2013, and maybe a little bit before, is when we kind of get that meta focus of, okay, gamers are familiar with how games are made, or mm-hmm. at least the kind of bare mechanics of them. We can start having fun with that. We can start playing into their assumptions and expectations and twist them to, mm-hmm. in a way that video games only can. It cannot be understated how much Bioshock fractured the entire industry in the best way yes. possible. I will always remember, I was driving home from, I used to work in Argos, which is like a retail chain in the UK. I was driving home after a late shift and I remember listening to Greg Miller back when he was on the IGN uh, podcast Beyond when he used to cover PlayStation for IGN. And he just played, he'd finished Bioshock and he, was, he couldn't say anything because he was embargoed, but he was trying to convey, obviously what we now know is the Would You Kindly twist yeah. to the rest of the guys that were on that podcast. And he was so overwhelmed with what that game had done. And I just always, I'll always remember everything that came out of that conversation and everything that came out of that game because all of a sudden it was like, well, why does Sonic collect rings? Why is Mario getting coins? Why, why introducing the idea of why into gaming mm, opened mm-hmm. everything up because if you go back to any older game, it was like, well, that's the evil dude and go kill the evil. Well, why is he evil? What's going on? You know, as soon as you introduce that element, it, you have to justify things more. You have to mature it more. You have to make it more than it was. Um, and for me, the linchpin is Bioshock. Even though 2013 carried on, I feel like the indie space came from those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, they had so much more to flesh out. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. But um, Hotline Miami is, a, is fundamentally a response to why do why, you know, we enjoy the violence of video games and making a game about that. Um, but yeah, I just want to throw that in that like Bioshock was seismic AF Hell as yeah. much as the would you, you know, with the would you kindly twist is driven into the ground now. Um, at the time, it was unbelievable. And then realizing what the journalists were referring to and then being like, and then having, that's the thing you can't replicate. When that twist drops and you realize how much you've, you literally, you have been taken advantage of, that's a very, very hard thing to replicate. And only yes. gaming could do that as well. Absolutely. You know, I mean, everyone, everything, sorry, even its own sequels mm. are living in like the shadow of Bioshock. Like what, <laughs> like you said, it just kind of broke what players expected from a game. Mm-hmm. It broke and changed the conversations that players had with the game itself Mm -hmm. and I think Bioshock Infinite coming out in 2013 and trying so hard to replicate that and initially seemingly succeeding with incredible reviews Mm -hmm. uh, but then not having the staying power that the first game had I think is fascinating you know that was one of the best rated games of that year yes but we don't talk about Infinite the same way that we talk about The Last of Us GTA 5 Gone Home Hotline Miami that we still do today and I Mm -hmm. think Mm -hmm. like it's it's yeah, it like, felt weird, right? Because when Infinite, I, again, I remember when Infinite dropped because I, I did a um, magazine design module when I was in university and I and that wasn't out yet, but we had to design something we were looking forward to. So I made a whole fake game magazine with that on the front of it. I was like really psyched for that, for Bioshock Infinite. Um, but it was a weird thing with that game where it felt like a big twist at the end was almost formulaic, even though it was just the third one. It was just, yeah. okay, what are you going to do this time? Because the Would You Kindly thing was everywhere. Um, and then looking back on it, like obviously at the time it was talked about, but the whole way that Ken Levine was trying to address the franchising of the Bio- of Bioshock um, and just, you know, there's always a lighthouse, there's always a yeah. man or whatever. Um, that could have been a really poignant comment on 
uh, a forced return to somewhere. And like people did get that from Bioshock Infinite, but I didn't. I always just thought that was a bit forced. Like they were trying to right. invert everything too much and like the, the Comstock stuff and everything. And I was like, this is too crazy. You're trying to wow me way too much. Whereas the more subtle twist of with the Lutest twins and the he doesn't row. That, if you know, you know, but the he doesn't roll line when you have full context is one of my favorite subtle twists ever in a game. Yeah. I love it. Well, here's the thing about Bioshock Infinite, right? <laughs> All of the games that we've mentioned so far, mm. I would go back and replay. I am so scared to replay Bioshock Infinite because <laughs> I loved it so much at the time. Right. It dropped at the perfect period for me. I was just getting into games. Mm. I was just realizing that they could have this extra layer. They could be meta commentaries. They could talk about franchises as a whole. and. Right creative cycles as a whole and I got it just after I got broken up with so I, no I it was my breakup game and I hammered it no bad in in one way but great because Using it was the like I hooked a punch everyone <laughs> I was just taking my anger out in my frustration and my sadness out on like this these racists <laughs> in this game and I was like yeah yeah at least I've got agency here I could uh, I could be happy in this world maybe if I'm not accidentally playing a terrible guy who in a multiverse is the worst guy in the world You didn't world. know that at the time You didn't know that no. at the time but the point is like I don't I worry that the themes of that game won't hold up uh, today obviously there was so many conversations mm. about the, the depiction of some of the characters in that game and some of the ideas in that game that you know people had problems with then and I was a bit too young to fully grasp at the time. Yeah. But the thing that I still genuinely will like is what you just said there, mm. that final twist of the lighthouses and how it's a commentary on like, there's always a lighthouse, there's always a guy. This is the formula of the franchise yeah. and we're making that subtext text now and bless you if you want to make another Bioshock because we've now closed that up. Yeah. And if you do it, you'll be admitting that it's just another one in this like grand, you know, multiversal kind of uh, thing. I still, even if the logic might not be there, I still like that idea. I'm going to make a horrific comparison for some Go people, on. but it reminds me of the, um, have you seen the scene in She-Hulk where she meets the Kevin Feige robot? I have not, actually. That's very much the same energy. And I, right. like in terms, well, in terms of in, in Infinite, obviously, and um, that's one of the best mic drops for an auteur to do. That's also another thing, and I know we're, we're going to wrap this up like soon or whatever. Well, but, you think that. I've got another thing I want to talk well, to you about. we shall. But the whole era of the auteur, that has very much gone away. There was a whole, there are various talking pieces, uh, commentary pieces, done on how much we empowered the auteur in gaming, the Hideo Kojimas, the Ken Levines, um, the uh, John Romeros, whoever it is. And it's not that they didn't help facilitate incredible video games, um, but did that lead to some tyrannical decisions? All you need to do is read into uh, Team Bondi. And I, uh, something McNamara is the dude that ran that studio for Ellen Noir, and that guy was an absolute monster, at least according to the um, reports that are written about him. Um, but that whole thing of like, you know, we, we point to a certain creator and go, I have faith in this IP because that guy's putting it together. Yeah. And um, that doesn't really happen that much now. Kojima is one of the only ones left. And um, we tend to think of the companies as the auteurs now, which is like there is a Sony identity now, which works in their favor, but we don't really have the auteurs. Um, the reason I mentioned um, She-Hulk, though, is that idea of once you acknowledge the auteur, once you acknowledge the figurehead, um, there's very little, in theory, it's a, I, I welcome shows, any uh, media property, any entity, I welcome the challenge to see what they're going to do next. Um, Last Jedi, for me, suffered from this. The She-Hulk tries to do it. I, I like the She-Hulk scene where she comes out, of the, like she punches through the screen, climbs into the Disney Plus menu, yeah. goes down into a different show and talks to the Kevin Feige robot right. about where how her character arc is working out and everything. That's great in isolation if you can do something with it. Obviously, it's acknowledging how formulaic the MCU is. It's acknowledging how much people don't care about what happens. They're just watching it anyway. Um, I think that is a genius move if you can do something brilliant with it. Um, but obviously, the way the MCU is doesn't feel like they've capitalized on that whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, for me, it just reminded me of that because, yeah, that was very much 
Ken Levine. And I remember thinking that playing through the final bit of Infinite, going, you can never do another one of these. Yeah. Um, and if you do, the guy himself is saying, like, is taking the authenticity and le- yeah. taking it out the door with him kind of thing. Um, but yeah, that was what always fascinated me about little, the way Infinite wraps up. Little did we know just how um, franchises in the video game realm and across culture in general were going to get so safe and yeah. so formulaic going <laughs> forwards. And uh, before we like, properly wrap this up, Scott, I just yes. want to ask you, because we've talked a lot about games that actually came out before the next generation of consoles mm. here. Uh, so I want to ask you, just before we wrap up, like 10 years on from the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One, like what do you think the legacy of those consoles is now in the games that eventually came out for, for them? the PS3 like, and the 360? Well, just in general of all like consoles, like where does the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One era mm. land for you? What does it represent? What does 2013 signal the beginning of in this <laughs> grand... Um, video game industry in history of it. Oh, God. Big question in it. A different type of purpose, I guess, because mm. we kind of cl- covered it. But like for me, it's like video games were one thing in the 70s and the 80s. They like they sucked up all your coins in the arcades. And then the 90s, it was like, we're going to experiment with these, with story time. We're gonna ex- even if it was something like GoldenEye or Metal Gear Solid, Final Fantasy VII, you had all these attempts at bringing storytelling into the games, but they were still very much video games. And then for me, the next turning point after you've got Kojima in the late 90s is the mid-2000s with Naughty Dog and Uncharted. We'd never seen motion capture like that. And if you go back, Uncharted 1 doesn't look that good. No. But it did at the time. It looked incredible at the time. Um, and it was like, okay, what are we going to do with this? And then it needed that um, extra like thematic punch that the indie scene brought. And that, like I said, Bioshock went there in terms of fourth wall breaks and, and player agency. And why are we doing these things? Why are we doing these repetitive tasks? Why do we care about how easy it is to kill in games or whatever it is? Um, it needed that thing to round it all off and then propel it to the next era. Um, I don't know if we need another era. I'd, I'd, I would I would want the next advancement of gameplay. Yeah. Like, um, which is kind of like a, just a raw technical thing of like minimizing loading or whatever it is. But I'm waiting for the industry to show that to me. I need you to show me something on a gameplay level that I couldn't even conceive of. Yeah. Um, that's what I'm waiting for. I feel like we've fleshed out thematics. We've fleshed out. We've done some of the darkest stories you could possibly do, whether it's like her, um, his dragon, that dragon cancer. Um, or papers, please, or whatever we've done, we've done it. Like we've proven we can do that, and mm. we can nail it, and we can make it immersive and interactive. And you'll be crying, or you'll feel shaken at the end of it, um, like the end of Last of Us Two, or the end of Celeste, or whatever. So for me, I'm like, okay, we've we've proven we can a Hollywood, and right. we can beat it. Now what? Like, right. I, like I, I, for me, there was so much in the games media, in the magazines, and just online across the 2010s um, about aping Hollywood and beating Hollywood and chasing Hollywood and casting A-listers and all that kind of stuff. And we, we've done it. We've done all that stuff. Yeah. So, like, maybe now we just make some games. <laughs> <laughs> hey, my friend, games are still coming out. I'm telling you that. I love games. I think it's interesting that you say, like, era there mm. because for me, and I'm just pulling this out of my ass now, <laughs> I, I, I'll need to think about this probably later, but for me, like, PlayStation yeah. 1, PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3 and the respective of the consoles that mm. came out along the same time at the same time like that's one era to me that is a natural progression of ideas and mm. mechanics and technology and then when you get to the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One obviously there's a continuation in some form but to me that really does signal the beginning of a new era that we're currently in like the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X 
generational leap is iterative, and you know I've, I've loved a lot of things that have been born from that, but I do think a lot of the ideas are carried on from the break between uh, the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One and mm-hmm. those being released, because that was just, again, such a flashpoint, I think, for the industry in general. It was proof that the console model would be around forever, yes. essentially. It was proof that it wasn't going to go away. People were ravenous for this stuff. They were ravenous for storytelling. They were ravenous for indies. They were ravenous for new ideas. They were ravenous for online games. And I think we've been living in that era since. And it, it like you, it makes me wonder what's what's next. Will there be another cutoff point like it? It has Will, been like a glossy version of where we left off in 2013. Yeah, like you yeah. Know, you might make matchmaking sizes can be bigger, 64 v 64 in Battlefield or whatever, but it's, it's a bigger, more refined version of where we landed in about 2013. When, like you said, the death knell was rung internally and then it was covered years later about how internally um, PC was the future and no one cared about consoles. Yes. um, EA was one of the the people saying that and everything. But um, they could not have been more wrong, like you said. And it's just like, yeah, trying to um, balance that stuff out, trying to get back to a point where budgets are manageable, projects are scopable, where, which clearly isn't the case right now, whether it be Redfall or you just name any game, it's broken at launch. Um, To me, I want to get back to where we were in terms of, well, project size. I don't want to limit creativity. There's a re- Right now, as we're recording this, um, Phil Spencer just did an interview about how Redfall was allowed to release that way. And he just right. said, I will never compromise the creativity of the studios. Like, yeah. they should be able to reach and take their shot. And if they miss, they miss. That's what I love about gaming. But um, I would love if turnaround was a bit faster, if... You know, if they could execute on a vision without it taking five years or eight years. Absolutely, absolutely agree. You know, 2013, I think, is an important year because it's got so many great moments, like we just said, but it was also an ending for Mm. so many bad practices. You know, you had, um, like I said, Dead Space 3 proving that EA's (laughs) model for their franchises just wasn't working. You had big disasters like Alien Colonial Marines. You had big gambles and big bets that kind of came to a head and kind of forced the industry to go, we can't keep doing this. <laughs> and we're on a similar trajectory now, I think, started by the beginning of the next gen uh, as it was at the time. Mm-hmm. And now we're at this point, like you said there, you know, when we're encountering a lot of the same problems on a bigger scale. And when are we going to get that crash point again? Because it's 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 cynical to say, but things have to crash in the video game <laughs> space before, you know, people shift ideas. They will take yeah. these ideas to breaking point until it stops making the money until they start becoming a proper laughing stock and then they have to change kind of mm. tact they have to change their approach and I don't think we're quite there yet but in a cynical way I feel like we're on that trajectory for as much as I love the games those practices those kind of uh, modes of thinking those those uh, years and years spent in development to produce a game that's buggy at launch and nobody <laughs> likes like that's that's gotta snap at yeah. some point, and then we will get maybe the next era, whether that's going to come at the end of the PS5 and the Xbox Series X generation, or whether it's going to extend into the PS6 and whatever the next Xbox is called generation. I don't know, but mm. I feel like that will come at some point. It seems inevitable. Like it's Thanos. A, this is such a wider conversation. Sorry, a wider talking point. I don't have all the requisite information for this, but I just wonder if there is an optimum way of making a AAA video game overall, and that is how long it'll take, and that is how pretty something is going to look like every now and then we get a version of a triple a game that didn't take the earth like jedi survivor launched it with a few patches it's been patched and need with a few bugs it's been patched now but respawn turned that around pretty quick and they also have been managing apex and titanfall 2 and they've been planning whatever their next ip is according to insiders insomniac have turned around an insane amount of games and whether it be ratchet and clank or the various spider-man games um there was another one as well but there are various studios who are finding they're nailing it and it's like they're getting there. Like they're finding a way to like have the project scope, have it look beautiful and have it ready 
um, without it costing the earth or breaking half the team in half. Half the team in half. Half the team in half. They're all in half. Um, but that's the thing. And I'm just like, what lessons can we learn from those teams? And it's like, yeah, you can look at Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart and say it's not like the most um, you know, innovative thing. It's not pushing the medium yeah. forward. But something in that space with that amount of money rarely would anyway. Like I just I just wonder about scope creep and all that kind of stuff. Of and get, and games getting too big for their own good and trying to chase constant growth constant growth in every single metric and yeah. instead of like i said just making some video games what you said there reminds me of something that actually might make you hate 2013 <laughs> to be honest because i'm talking about it being a year of beginnings and also a year of endings 2013 was the last time we saw naughty dog and rockstar be the older version of themselves yeah. you always talk about rockstar you know releasing a bunch of games and in that three-year period, they released um, Red Dead Redemption in 2010, they mm -hmm. released Max Payne 3 in 2012, and then GTA 5, and then did nothing until Red Dead Redemption 2, which is one of my favorite games of all time, mm. and then nothing since then until GTA 6, presumably. Uh, Naughty Dog have been more prolific, but Last of Us, despite being a new franchise then, kind of also railroaded them into a specific set of franchises, mm. kind of in the Rockstar model, where then Last of Us was all they made, apart from the Uncharted game, and now it's like, when's the new IP? So it's I don't honestly, mind that as much as you do, but I just mm. thought it was interesting that that was also the end of that era, almost, yeah, for them. From Software is the other one that I want to shout out. They have <sighs> such a solid turnaround, and there are things on the uh, Glassdoor, the website, about the reality of, potential reality of how they're turning things around and whether that leads to too much crunch. Um, obviously, that needs to be investigated further or whatever, but in terms of their turnout, their turnaround, the look at the amount of games, the amount of new IPs that are like Bloodborne, Sekiro, Dark Souls, we're going to get another Armored Core. Like, they are on fire in the best way right now. And they, I'm just like, okay, there has to be a model in there that works. Yes. Like, if they can turn around Elden Ring um, after having done Sekiro and Dark Souls 3 and whatever, all within, like, they're all two years apart. Um, how are they doing this? And some of it will come down to reusing an engine the same way that Rockstar used to. But that's the, that's the thing. If you want to get a little bit sad about the turnaround of the, the devs that you love, look at Rockstar's output across the 2000s and contrast it with the 2010. Because you're going from like 10 games to three or two or whatever it is. Like, it's just, for me, I, like I've always said I would love like... 10 smaller games from the no the minds of Naughty Dog than one giant one every eight years. Yeah. Like, or every five years or whatever it is. I just, it's just not worth that much time <laughs> for that game. Like, yeah, I would, I would take like 20, like, like loads of smaller games. Not tiny, not pixel no. platformers necessarily, but like a Chia or a Sifu or a Hellblade or whatever from those people rather than putting all these eggs into all these baskets. And if it fails, it fails so hard. Over and over and over again. Listen, this is why I love you. I respect that. I don't agree. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that necessarily. I know you love all the big stuff. I love the big opulence, but I also agree that putting all your eggs in a basket when that basket is like Anthem mm. or is like The Division is probably not a good idea. Is like, red and is falling. Is red and is falling and is uh, what Halo and is <laughs> infinite. You know, stuff like that is uh -huh. probably not a good idea. You need to have backups. You need to have the ability to... Um, Allow your developers to flex creatively rather than just work on one game for eight years and mm -hmm. then uh, have it like be something that's following market trends like Suicide Squad. Yeah, sorry, not to jump in. I'm just thinking like if there was something where because so, there's a whole thing right now about uh, internally Xbox slash Microsoft have said that they're working on a sequel to something that they think will take a decade. Yeah, I hate that. <laughs> I don't want you to sit there for a decade. How much has changed in the last decade? I think that's Imagine a good point. Working on something for ten years. That is that is that's that's what I always think is crazy. You know when Halo Infinite came out in. in Ignoring the issues that game had. Like, that game's ambitions of being a Halo that will survive for 10 years mm. 
we are now 10 years out from 2013. And while we're saying that the industry, you know, is following the seeds of things that were laid then, things have changed a lot in the past 10 years. Like the, <laughs> the, the gaming space is so rapid in its uh, evolutions and its technological revolutions that I don't know how you can plan for 10 years in a video game you space got? with one game. I mean, the Destiny plan didn't work. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're GTA 5, which was a fluke in and of itself, by the way. <laughs> uh, it's just impossible. I just, yeah, there's that side of it. There's the trend side of it. There's also what creative vision do you need 10 years to, to map out yeah, for? Yeah. Like, and again, I obviously side with the Phil Spencers of the world saying I'd put money behind a creative vision. It might be the next best thing in the world that someone might experience. But at the same time, what I just think the amount, the, the sheer size that the industry's got to where the expectation is that if you want to make a game on the toppest upper echelon, that's three to five years of your life minimum. That's kind of nuts. Hey. Like, that's kind of crazy. Um, Microsoft want to enter the um, era of the quadruple A game. So I, unfortunately, <gasps> I think that's the future of our lives, at least in the short term, until that is, proves to be a that term. That was the that's for the reboot of Perfect Dark. That yep. apparently they can't even decide on what that game is. The, yep. the last insider report for that was that they can't even decide if it's first or third person. It's so, funny. Good. Like, I know. I know. Video. This is not me being facetious or anything like that. Video <laughs> game development is really hard, but it's mm -hmm. always striking to me when you read a report from the development of a troubled game in how little people know what that game is going to be even yes, while they're making yeah. it. You know, you look at the original report from, I think it's Jason Schreier's Blood, Sweat and Pixels, his book where he chronicles the um, the development of Destiny and how much of that game was thrown out six months, mm. nine months before it was set to release. People didn't know if it was going to be third person, first person, what, you know. <laughs> Anthem, obviously, famously, Mass Effect Andromeda, no one really knew the scope of that game, what it was going to be. Mm -hmm. It's crazy how... Video game development is so unwieldy now that no one even really knows what they're making until it's like a year before launch and then they're well, scrambling like, to do all the missions for it. That's kind of the auteur thing because I cannot recommend the Double Fine documentaries enough. Um, the most recent one on Psychonauts 2 is a great look into that because they, they have to keep relying on Tim Schafer. Um, but he's not available because he's writing scripts or he's not in the office or whatever it is. And there are so many design teams going like, I, I, do I take the initiative with this? I have no idea. Like they're trying to go off this master document that he's not even finished yet. Mm. So it's like uh, the idea of like, I remember the guy from Bungie when they were making Halo 2 saying it's like jumping out of a plane and stitching the parachute on the way down and you'll either get there or you'll just hit the floor. And um, which is a uh, bullet of my Valentine reference, but that's still that's a very good song. Yeah. But um, that's kind of the thing with game dev is that you do need that focus, and you can tell which games have that focus and which ones don't. Um, to, for the vast majority, like um, but yeah, I think that all that stuff ha it started in 2013 and, and exploded from there. Yeah, I mean, you know, to, to end maybe on a positive, I, I'd, I'd again point out Jedi Survivor. You know, yes. that game has bugs, but the core of it. It feels like the people who made it knew what they wanted to make Absolutely. from the get-go. It's like, we have a vision for what this can be. Maybe I'm entirely wrong. Maybe they just ma worked a miracle right at the very end, but I'd be very surprised because that thing is so focused mm. for a triple-A game especially. It's so good. It's so laser-focused on what it wants to deliver, mm -hmm. and it delivers it with the exception of water, which uh, <laughs> tanks the game into five <laughs> frames per second. God damn it, Respawn. Let me love it. Hey, it might be patched by now, but um, i tell you what the marker for... There's two things here. One... Mike Bithel uh, from Bithel Games just made the Neutron game, which the, I forgot what the hell that thing's called, but it's a Neutron game. Bithel also made uh, Thomas Was Alone and Volume. He said, if you want to look at how much time um, someone was allowed to perfect a video game, look at the toilets. <laughs> he had this whole thing. And he, I think it started as a joke, but he mentioned it on one of the old podcasts with Alana Pierce and Troy Baker um, and Austin Wintry, that um, if you look at a game's toilets, how much effort has gone into that? Can you interact with them? Um, what shape are they? How much geometry do they have? Like, are they re refined? Like, he was like, it started as a stupid thing, but you need something as 
pointless as that. Yeah. Um, to let you know whether they were allowed to, you know, uh, cross the T's, dot the I's. Um, second thing is uh, Ewan, who's returned to our culture Hello, after Ewan. a little vacation at the old screen rant. We were talking to him about Jedi Survivor because he's in the office now. And there's a trophy in that game, no spoilers, but if you pull off a certain combat move involving a drop kick, yeah. you'll get a trophy. And I was like, that level of rewarding you for such specificity is very rare. Like, I feel like I see that in Insomniac stuff, but very, very rare. Well, it's so funny you mentioned Jedi Survivor and Mike Bithell's toilet comment, because you can also go into the toilet in Jedi Survivor. <laughs> you can unblock it. You can wash your hands. And you Point get, you proven. get a trophy there as right. well. So you that's the perfect example of just hit my microphone with my water bottle. <laughs> I'm very excited that I've made that connection. Uh, that's it hilarious. sums that's, it up. That's, that's great, true. isn't it? I know. Yeah. Because, because I, I would treat Survivor as a game that was allowed to be curated and crafted and, and given the time in the oven. Um, you can directly contrast it with Redfall. Yeah. Um, something that doesn't have a focus and did just get kicked out the door um, or whatever. But yes, for now, this has been our respect, retrospective on the year 2013. We'll do some more of these. We will. Because there's good years in gaming history. 2007 comes to mind. 15 um, was great. Yeah. 2015 was ridiculous. 2015 was incredible. Oh, Two, uh, 1997, I'm a big fan of. 1998 yeah. as well. Oh, 1999, yeah. And the 2000, pretty much all of them. But <laughs> we'll see how we go. Um, but yeah, massive thank you to everybody for listening. This has been the What Culture of Gaming podcast. I've been your host, Scott Tailford, joined by Josh Brown. Always a pleasure, Scott Tailford. Always a pleasure to be heard by all of you. And we'll catch you later in the week. Bye. Goodbye. Lovely. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.